Hi, this is and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know related to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George, and we're going to start off by talking about the very foundations of the NDIS, the NDIS Act itself. Have you ever wondered what the NDIS Act means when it talks about reasonable and necessary support? Well, stay tuned because you're about to find out. With me today is Chris Thwaites, our legal advocacy lead here at the Summer Foundation. Hi, Chris. Hi, George. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Now, tell me, you're really uh, passionate about the NDIS Act. You, you love this act, don't you? I know. It, sound, it, it identifies me as a real nerd, but I'm a big fan of this act, George. Tell us why you love it so much. Well, I like the way it's been structured, but basically I like what it's supposed to do. The Act ensures everybody in Australia against, um, or support, supports everybody in Australia who finds themselves with a disability to get necessi- reasonable and necessary supports. It sets out the Australian government's obligation in relation to how it responds to the UN Convention on Peoples with a Disability. And it sets out a human rights response to that. So it really sets the person, the participant, in the middle of the decision-making to make sure that they are involved in decisions that are made about them. Yeah, as, as a person with a disability, I'm very thrilled to know that there's now legislation that says that I have an entitlement to support. And entitlement is really important because... Without entitlement, you're sort of at the mercy of what the next budget might offer people with disabilities or what the next government might want to do um, in terms of supporting our human rights. So having it in law um, effectively means it's there forever, yeah? Absolutely, or until they change the law, but (laughs) it's certainly a different approach in law. So this Act really embodies a change from a charity-based approach to a rights-based approach. So from people getting things because people are charitable or the government is charitable, charitable, to people have a right to ask for these things and have a right for these things to be provided. So that's a big change. It absolutely is. And um, it's very much in line with our human rights conventions, isn't it? And the, the fact that we are signatories to the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Absolutely. So this is a way that Australia is demonstrating how it's implementing their obliga- its obligations under that convention. And I know you don't like me reading stuff out about this Act, George, but let me just take you to a couple of highlights in relation to the object of the Act. So this is in Section 3. It's right up the front. The Act is very easy to read, so I'd recommend people grab a copy of it if they'd like. But there's a whole list of objects objects for this Act, so the, the purpose of this Act. One of it is to give effect to Australia's obligation under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which was a 2006 convention of the UN. Another one is to provide for the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia, so it sets up the scheme, it also sets up the agency. 
the other objection that I, uh, objection, <laughs> the other object of the act that I really like is the object of the act is to support the independence and the social and economic participation of people with disabilities. Now that's, that's awesome. a great object of an act to have. So that should underline all of the objectives, all all of the other objectives and the other things that are done under this act. So that's a really, really powerful one. And it's also there to enable people with disability to exercise choice and control in the pursuit of their goals and planning and delivery of their support. So again, it really centres the participant. Because we need to remember that the NDIS itself is really around reforming the way supports are being provided. So it's about looking at the old system that was very much about block funding, it was about having places um, for people that they could then, um, you know, fill, um, but it wasn't about people having control over their lives. So this is about moving the funding from providers or from government, putting it in the, in the hands of people with disabilities so that they can make the choices that suit them, suit us, that are related to what we want and what we need and what we know is important to us. Absolutely, a huge shift and a big shift that is supposed to be, it's informed by market economics in a way, it's supposed to put the power of the consumer in the hands of the person with the disability so they can go out and choose what supports they want and where they're going to spend their money. They can take that money with them so they're no longer locked into one locality or one service provider and not be able to move. It's a national um, scheme in that regard. So it really does shift the goalposts. All right, so let's look at the app a little bit more closely. Um, let's start with eligibility. What makes someone eligible for the NDIS? Okay, so there's a number of, uh, a few criteria in relation to whether you're eligible for the NDIS. There's an age criteria, a residence criteria, and a disability requirements criteria. So in relation to the age, it's anyone under the age of 65 at the time they make a request to be, uh, to access the scheme. So, so long as you're under 65 at the time you request to access the scheme, you tick off that criteria. There's also the residence requirements, which generally mean you need to reside in Australia and be an Australian citizen or a permanent visa holder. And the third one is the disability requirement, which generally speaking means that you need to have an impairment or a condition that is likely to be permanent or lifelong and that stops you from doing everyday things by yourself. And there's a very specific um, section around that. So in relation to um, the criteria, it sets out uh, the Act sets out age and residence and disability requirements. Excellent. Now, when it comes to um, people being eligible, that, 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 that's effectively um, also around uh, having to prove their disability to some extent? To some extent, yes, although the rollout is um, a way... So the... The rollout is happening across Australia and a lot of information is sharing, being shared between different agencies in the rollout. So some people are rolling in to the scheme without having to do too much paperwork because um, uh, information from previous um, schemes are being 
uh, imported into the NDIS so people are rolling in without too much problems if they have that sort of history with another agency. But I guess if you haven't ever received disability supports, there will be a, a need to prove that your disability is lifelong. Yep, yep. So you'll need to, you'll need to um, provide some evidence or some um, reports in relation to that and you can do that by if you've got any healthcare professionals working with you or providing supports to write reports that you can use this then with the agency in order to address it. If you want to have a look at the specific section in relation to what you need to address it's section 24 of the Act. Okay and that, that is around lifelong disability and, um, and also that your disability um, impacts on your daily life. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's good for people to know. Um, the next uh, really important part of the act is around looking at this concept of reasonable and necessary, and it's it's really you know, it's what we're calling our podcast because that is the essence of what the NDIS is all about. It's about funding what is reasonable and necessary for a person with a disability to have an ordinary everyday life. Absolutely. So the Act sets up um, general supports, which is generally supported, um, supports provided by the agency, and then it's um, reasonable and necessary supports which they'll fund, which is the funding that individuals get and they get to choose then where they spend that money. Okay. Now, the Act does spend a bit of time covering um, what it means to have a reasonable and necessary support. Um, I understand there are about six criteria, is that right? Absolutely. So this is one of my favourite sections, George, Section 34. So Section 34 sets out the things that the agency has to keep in mind when they're deciding what might be a reasonable and necessary support that they're going to fund. So they have to go through this criteria that they that the decision maker turns their mind to in relation to whether they'll fund this particular support, whether they find it is a reasonable and necessary support. Okay. And, and it's important for people to be familiar with these criteria because when you're put into your plan you need to start thinking about well what is it that, that is reasonable and necessary for me and for my life. Um, so how about we just spend a bit of time looking at um, at these one by one and we'll start with um, the, the fact that a support needs to help a person to pursue their goals and their aspirations. So the, the 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 plan that participants will get as they are as they're rolled into the NDIS is all about um, capacity building and about achieving goals and aspirations. So right up the front of the plan, um, participants are asked what are their goals, what are their aspirations. So these are things that are really important to think about because it's then that that's what your reasonable and necessary supports have to link to to show why you need them to achieve your goals and aspirations. So it's a really good idea to think broadly 
about what goals and what um, aspirations you want to put into your plan and how they might link to the things that you think you're going to need as far as reasonable and necessary supports. And legally it's important as well because when it comes down to um, perhaps challenging an outcome um, of your plan or um, requesting a review, um, you can say, well, my goal was to live independently. Um, I need funding for that. So um, if they fund something that you know, puts you in a group home where you're not having that independence, if that's not what your goal is, then legally it shouldn't be the plan. Well, that's where the argument is. So absolutely, it's really a good idea to take some time to think about what your goals might be, what your objectives and your aspirations are. And that's the first criteria in this section 34 when the decision maker, the agency, turns their mind to what might be reasonable and necessary supports. The first thing they have to think about is whether the support will assist the participant to pursue the goals, objectives or aspirations included in their plan. So there has to be a pretty clear link to that. So that's the thing to start with, absolutely. Okay, and the second one is around um, the social and economic participation and that your funding is tied to that. So I guess that's really important because that means that people can um, get funding for being out in the community, having a job, um, having a life, basically. Absolutely having a life. And again, that gets back to the objectives of the Act we talked about before and what the whole uh, purpose of the Act is. And so again, it's about linking what you're asking for and showing, or at least satisfying the decision maker, that the support that you're asking for will assist a participant to undertake activities or to facilitate their social and economic participation. So it's all about getting people out and about in their community and in broader community. And to help them to be able to do that, they might need some supports. And this is the way that they'll be funded. And the, the thing that I love about that is it's, 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 it's not about the old model. And the old model was about institutionalising people or keeping people locked away. Um, this is about getting people out into the world, um, being part of um, um, regular life. And and I also think you know, a practical example would be that in your funding it would be appropriate that you would access, you know, the local suburban swimming pool as opposed to, you know, a facility that might happen to have a, you know, a hydro pool somewhere. So it's about making sure that people disabilities a visible part of their community. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is, and that's one of the things that sort of attracts me to this act and thrills me about this act. That's all, that's what it's about. It's bringing people into the, their community, not taking them away and putting them into smaller communities that are um, outside the mainstream, but bringing them back into the community and supporting them to participate in the community. Yeah, where we belong, absolutely. Uh, the third one is a tricky one for some uh, things, and that's around value for money. Yes, so the decision maker has to think about whether the support that's been requested represents 
something called value for money, in that the costs of the support are reasonable relative to both the benefit achieved and the cost of alternatives. So that's a bit of a formula, but basically they have to turn their mind to it. So people have to address it. Why is this particular support value for money? What's it going to do? Is it going to save money in other areas? Is it going to be less expensive than other supports? Or it might be more expensive than other supports, but provide a greater outcome. So value for money can be a complex... Yeah, it doesn't mean it's the cheapest. No, it But it's the it's one that brings the most benefit yeah. um, for the money that is being spent on it. Absolutely. Um, and I know that um, in, for a lot of people, um, you know, that... that that can be a little bit challenging because um, a person may um, you know, be in a situation where they want a certain um, support, but there's nothing to compare it to necessarily. Um, so it does require a little bit more thinking than possibly the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. And you can go, I think, a bit globally when you don't have that sort of nuts and bolts or those numbers to compare it to you know, support A costs this much and support B costs this much. If you don't have that, you can think a bit more globally in relation to what this value for money might be, how it um, can contribute to a global cost assessment of people's support. So I think people can be um, creative in relation to how they uh, can value a support in relation to this. And there may be value that occurs after a period of time. So. Um, supporting someone um, in a volunteer role, for example, um, that would set them up to have paid employment, possibly, down the track. So, Which leads just, to lower costs, yeah. possibly, because they can contribute to their own costs if they've got paid employment. So that's sort of a longer-term value yeah. for money proposition. Okay, thank you. And um, this next one um, is a little bit... Um, tricky as well, and that's around um, whether it's likely to have a beneficial impact and um, is effective with regard to current good practice. So that's about an evidence base, isn't it? It is about an evidence base, and it's to ensure that um, the supports that are funded have an evidence base and, and are recognised as good practice. So it may mean that some people who might um, want a support that isn't recognised in a particular profession to be funded, they might come up against some challenges in relation to that. It really is about not necessarily cutting off new and, um, a, and yet to be tested supports, but it is mainstreaming a lot of the good practice and making sure that the supports that are funded are recognised as good practice. So, for example, could that be, um, you know, someone might think that um, swimming with the dolphins has benefit for their disability. You'd want to come to your planning meeting with a lot of evidence supporting that swimming with dolphins will have beneficial impact. Absolutely. and. You know, um, in relation to support animals in a lot of different categories, uh, there has been some recognition around how they can help with anxiety disorders and other things like that. So I think there's always a movement towards how mainstream um, supports can be. And I think, you know, this 
criteria means it's they're not going to necessarily fund the really extreme main uh, really extreme new types of therapies but as they as they get picked up by professions and are used, you can see how those sort of things can evolve over time to become good practice. So it's something that people can think about, but it will bring them back to sort of um, professionals and whether they consider it good practice. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not just your opinion. No, it's not just what you want. <laughs> what you think might be good. Yeah. Although it is interesting when you look at some of the... Um, case law that's come out, um, there, there was recently some some evidence that there are um, certain things that you could challenge um, at, at, at a review um, of your plan. Um, so, yeah, be prepared and get your evidence together. And that's definitely the case, and the case law will show that if you have had some support in the past and you can document that it's been effective and beneficial, that can give you a bit of an evidence base to address this particular criteria. So it's always good to address what you've got in, what you've had in the past and what sort of effect it may have had. This one's around informal networks and taking into account what is reasonable to expect families, carers and informal networks to provide. Yeah, absolutely. So. As you can sort of tell as we go through this criteria and as um, you mentioned before, it's a move away from block funding into individual fundings. It really is looking at individualised plans and so it places people in context of their environment and what sort of informal supports they might have. That looks to family, that looks to carers and informal networks and communities. And it says, well, the NDIS isn't going to fund everything if you can get some things from those sort of networks, that environment that you already inhabit. And so it takes that into consideration. And it also considers um, your life in terms of what would be expected of someone at your stage of life. So, for example, there'd be an expectation that parents and families would provide a lot more informal support to um, a child under 18, for example, compared to, you know, an adult who it would be expected that at, at you know, 25 or older would be relatively independent and wouldn't be expected to have their parents do a lot for them. Absolutely, and that's right. So it sort of individualises plans and recognises that people's um, supports will probably change. The type of supports people might want will probably change over the um, nature, over the length of their lifetime, depending on, you know, a six, as you say, a six-year-old is going to have a completely different sort of informal support network around them than a 25-year-old. And the other thing that I would say to people is to um, make your planner aware that even though you might have a certain informal support being provided now, that that informal support may or may not be um, available into the future, or maybe it's being provided now because you didn't have the NDIS before. Absolutely. So it's not, it, it shouldn't be seen as a way where, for the um, NDIS to not fund things. It shouldn't be seen as a way of saying, okay, well, you have a family, so you don't have and that family has to do everything, so we're not going to fund anything. It's a, it should recognise people's environments and what's reasonable to expect from those, and those, those reasonable expectations will change over time. 
Okay, the last one relates to um, who is most appropriately set up to fund a particular support. So it recognises that, you know, we live in a world where there's all sorts of different uh, supports that are provided by the health system, education system, criminal justice system, and the rest. So, how would this be considered around someone who might, for example, think that they need um, a teacher's aid or some other kind of support? And this is where the the criteria that the decision maker has to turn their mind to is also made uh, explicitly aware that there are other um, types of agencies that provide some forms of support and some forms of services and that the NDIS isn't going to pick up all of that and that they're going to work in with other agencies that might be more appropriate to provide those sort of support. So it's about how the NDIS or, and the NDIA as the agency meshes in with some of the other support agencies to ensure that some supports are appropriately funded by the NDIS and others are more appropriately funded by other agencies. Wow, it's pretty complex, isn't it, when you um, start talking about all the different aspects of the Act. Um, do you think that there um, is a need to, um, I guess, sit back and reflect on your plan and, and, and I guess, um, check it in in terms of all the different aspects of the Act? or? Yeah, I think so. I think people should take their time to make sure that their plan reflects what they want to do and reflects the sort of goals and aspirations they have, but also the sort of supports that would be reasonable and necessary to do so. As a bit of, and, and those six criteria that we work through um, are supposed to help the decision maker, but also the participant work out what the um, agency might fund. There are uh, rules around, so the Act sits at the top of the sort of hierarchy of what um, the law is around this, but underneath the Act, they've also written rules which are sort of subordinate um, legislation that helps you sort of understand what the Act might be getting at. And they've published some rules in relation to the supports that participants get. And one of the things that always helps me um, try and uh, work out what um, all those different criteria might mean to a specific support um, also helps the rules also help what they won't fund. So the Act says what they need to take into consideration in relation to what they might fund or what they will fund, but the rules also help define that by saying what they won't fund. And it's very clear in the rules that um, the agency won't fund um, a support that is likely to cause harm to a participant or pose a risk to others. They won't fund a support that is not related to a participant's disability. They won't fund a support that duplicates or uh, other supports already funded by a different mechanism. And they won't fund supports that relate to day-to-day -day living costs that are not related to the participant's support needs. So that gives you a sort of um, a fence around which the sort of things that they won't fund. And those day-to-day -day living costs is often the, um, the one that can be a little bit controversial. Um, because people might find it hard to separate their day-to-day -day life from their disability life. Because sometimes when you have a disability, 
all the costs just feel like there's a division of disabilities. Yeah, and the agency will tease that apart because that's what they're looking at and they need to apply these rules as well. So the day-to-day living costs, I think, can be the really complex one. Mm, and, and it's important that we remember that the NDIS wasn't intended as, as income. It's not income. It is a, a form of um, insurance, effectively, against the cost of disability. Absolutely. And it's to help people participate and to engage, but it's not supposed to pay for everything in a person's life. So that's where the decisions start to get really complex. Wow, Chris, there's a lot there. I hope um, uh, viewers have found that uh, informative and and useful. And uh, thanks for your time. You're very welcome and uh, good luck listeners to uh, all your plans and all your uh, hopes and uh, all your aspirations. That's all we have time for on today's podcast of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Follow us on Facebook at Building Better Lives to hear the next podcast as it's released. You can also access a transcript and keep up to date with our latest info on the NDIS. I'm Dr. George, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.